Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Amy Winehouse died at the age of 27, and she lived a life that gravitated towards trouble like a moth to a flame. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. 14 would be the number of months Pete Doherty of the Libertines spent behind bars before linking up with Amy to make some disturbing videos featuring baby mice. Three more would be the number of days she went on a binge of Class A drugs shortly after being introduced to them by her then-husband. Another six would be the number of substances coursing through her body when she overdosed and nearly died at the end of that binge. Two more would be the number of years that her marriage would last before she was served divorce papers from behind prison bars, sending her into a post-rehab downward spiral. Another one for the number of theater managers she violently assaulted while attending a live holiday performance of Cinderella. And a final one would be the number of years she'd have left to live after making a surprise performance with Mark Ronson and giving everyone hope that things were finally turning around all totaling 27. On this episode, disturbing videos, class A drugs, downward spirals, and Amy Winehouse. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club.
The low-quality camera was fixed on Amy. She stood half-naked in a dingy room, her fingernails full of dirt and ash. Clothes hung from her thin frame. Her eyes were sunken and dark. The room was filled with an oppressive blue light. Its glow reflected off Amy's pale, sickly skin, a sharp contrast with the soot-black beehive atop her head. She wasn't the only one in the room. Another lanky, gaunt figure stalked in the shadows behind her. A figure who, like Amy's husband, Blake Fielder Civil, was no stranger to the inside of a jail cell. A walking train wreck who also happened to be an indie rock icon. The king shit of London's 21st century guitar rock renaissance, Pete Doherty of the Libertines and Baby Shambles fame. The one and the same who hadn't met a bottle, model, or snortable substance he didn't like in all of England. He had the look of a man on a perpetual bender, like he was due to stumble out of his own body at any time. An atomic bomb of debauchery, drug, drink, and demons, and he had just entered Amy's orbit. Amy held up a small plastic container. It was full of two dozen day old mice. Amy and Pete had been nursing them. The newborn rodents couldn't even hold their heads up. Their skin was still pink, translucent. They were blissfully unaware that one of the two junkies providing their care had recently, it was alleged, forced his own cat to smoke crack with him. Amy's hand trembled as she reached into the container and held up one of the mice. She handed it to Pete. She picked up another, sat it on her long bony finger and held it to the camera. This one's got a message for Blake. Blake, please don't divorce mommy. She loves you ever so. Pete turned his mouse to the camera. If you divorce her, you'll have to deal with me. The video was a tough watch, and so, naturally, it was posted to YouTube, and it was titled, Wine Mouse. Two 21st century musical icons out of their minds on another fucking planet, handling rodents in some nondescript London flat. Two musical icons who had, respectively, been released from police custody and from prison, both on drug-related charges just days before the video's release. Two musical icons who wouldn't know a brake pedal if it hit them in their numbed faces, both on a collision course with the abyss, willingly slouching towards it hand in hand. The video was shocking, but really not surprising. It seemingly proved that everything the tabloids wrote about Amy Winehouse had been accurate. Amy Winehouse and Pete Doherty had already been photographed popping around town. The paparazzi were onto them, and the tabloids already decided what was happening while Blake Fielder Civil was sitting in a jail cell for his assault on James King at the Macbeth pub and the subsequent attempt to extort that victim. Amy was shacking up with the biggest druggie in the country, getting her rocks off in more ways than one. And then, to back up that tabloid thesis, remarkably, a second video surfaced. The camera was shaky, the quality again poor. Amy sat over a small cage, holding one of the newborn mice in one hand and a bottle in the other. She slurred her words as she bottle-fed the mouse. Her mood was far more subdued, as if she was smack in the middle of a harsh comedown. This one, this is Baby Blue. Amy nursed the days old rodent gently, moving slowly and deliberately in an almost trance-like state. I'm going to keep a special eye on this one. He feels very neglected. Amy could relate. 
Blake was incarcerated and she was feeling a little neglected herself. It already felt like Blake had been gone for an eternity, but they still had a long way to go before they would be together again. And that's when Pete Doherty stepped in. Hell, he even looked a little like Blake. Amy claimed that she and Pete were nothing more than platonic friends, but to the public's prying eyes, she had a thing for jailbirds. Pete had just been released from Wormwood Scrubs, a dirty old relic of a prison. The place was so dicey and dangerous that an officer once said, if a prisoner wanted to take a hostage, you would be at their mercy. Pete had been jailed 14 weeks for missing a meeting with his probation officer after a very public heroin bust. Given Pete's rap sheet, the fact that 14 weeks was his longest stint in prison was something of a miracle. His backlog of brush-ups with the law made Amy look bush league. 2003, robbery. Pete broke into his own bandmate's apartment and got away with instruments and recording equipment to sell so he could buy more dope. 2005, robbery and blackmail. He and a friend attacked a documentary filmmaker who sold photos of Pete smoking heroin to several tabloids. Pete broke the guy's nose. 2005, possession of class A drugs, twice. Driving under the influence twice within 10 days, ordered to enter a rehabilitation center, didn't stick. 2006, driving under the influence, suspected to have been high on class A drugs, required to attend 18 months in rehabilitation, fat fucking chance. Drug possession, five more times, casual car theft under the influence of drugs, assault, that BBC radio reporter would think twice before approaching him again. 2007, driving without insurance, probably high, possession of crack, heroin, cannabis, and ketamine, possession while at London's V Festival, assault, the photographer was trying to take pictures of him and his girlfriend. 13 arrests in four years. The British tabloids dragged Pete through the mud every chance they got, and he gave them no shortage of chances. Rehab? Yes, actually, he'd been there, but he could never find a way to kick the habit, not completely. He was addicted not just to illicit substances, he was addicted to the life of a zero-fucks-given lawbreaker. His atomic glow shone brightly on Amy Winehouse. He detonated on impact. Amy was scorched earth, ground zero. She had pushed her addictions to the absolute limit. Years later, in an interview with the Daily Mail, Pete Doherty would confess that his relationship with Amy did cross over from friends to lovers, albeit briefly. Towards the end, he said, as only lovers can, she became quite mean and cruel to me. And when words weren't enough to communicate exactly how she felt, Pete claimed her mean right hook did the talking for her. Amy saved her tenderness for the mice and for Blake, whom she continued to love against all odds. Even when the odds were not just sad, they were stacked against her, even as things were about to go from sad to worse. First, her eyes went out. Then her body followed. Gravity claimed her. She dropped straight down, hit the bed, full body convulsions. The partygoers clammed up. No one said a goddamn thing. 
She made noises and slid off of the bed and hit the floor, collapsed like a dying star with nothing but a dull thud. August, 2007. At this point, Blake Fielder Civil had zero experience dealing with seizures. He was high as shit, and now he was panicking on top of being high. His heart pounded, his head felt like a squall at sea. In his head, he thought to himself, somebody do something, someone to save my wife's life. But the only word that kept coming out of his mouth was Amy. Each time louder and more helpless than before. Like if he said her name loud enough, it would reach her and she would snap out of it. But saying Amy's name over and over again wasn't going to do anything. And neither was anyone else fried out of their minds at this house party. Blake was going to have to come to Amy's rescue. So he quickly dropped to the floor and picked up Amy's head. He pulled her tongue out of her mouth to make sure she didn't swallow it or bite it off. Suddenly, Amy stopped breathing. No, no, she couldn't die, not here, not now. She had so much left to do, she was just getting started. And they had just been partying with some friends, nothing out of the ordinary. Sure, they were on a three-day drug binge, but it wasn't even like she had done that much at one time. They had paced themselves. In this moment, he wasn't even sure if he could remember exactly what she had recently taken or in what order. Mouth to mouth, he had seen that done before. It seemed easy, no sweat. Just use his mouth to breathe inside her mouth. Blake pried open Amy's jaw and pushed air into her lungs, felt for a pulse, nothing. Fuck, had her heart completely stopped? All he could hear was his own heart practically bursting from his own body. He tried mouth to mouth again, more forcefully this time. Hopefully this would do the trick, and her chest would finally rise, blowing more air into her mouth, hoping for some sign of life, anything at all. Amy, come on, love, wake up, wake up, please wake up. Once more, he attempted to blow air into her lungs. Third time was the charm. Amy coughed and took a massive inhale, returning back from the other side, back to the land of the living. She looked around the room, startled. She didn't know who the hell the man sitting over her was, and she sure as fuck didn't know where she was or what she was doing on the floor. All she knew was that she needed another hit. Someone bring her another hit immediately. Her eyes closed again, and then they opened and then closed. She began slipping in and out of consciousness every few seconds. A friend rang a taxi service and had her taken directly to the hospital to recover. She knew the questions from the press would come fast and furious, and they probably already got wind of this, already smelled the blood of the wounded animal and were ready to pounce. So she got out ahead of it. Once she recovered, she told the press to stop speculating, stop spreading rumors. It was exhaustion, plain and simple, that's all. She checked into the hospital because she was exhausted. The press had their field day as they always did, and it was later revealed and reported that, of course, it wasn't exhaustion at all. Amy's seizure was due to an overdose of a mixture of heroin, cocaine, ecstasy, ketamine, whiskey, and vodka. She shouldn't have survived. She was so tiny and her intake was so large. Doctors warned her that the next time, she may not be so lucky. Unlucky for Blakefield or Civil, bad memories linger. And so Amy's 2007 overdose was the kind of memory running through his mind as he sat in a prison cell in January of 2009 on account of the whole Macbeth pub dust-up. He lurched over a recent copy of the tabloid News of the World. He'd heard about the article on the inside, but needed to see it with his own eyes. Inside, he found a photo of his wife, the beehive diva, 
But in this photo, she no longer had that beehive. Her clothes looked like they actually fit her. She no longer had the skeletal figure that she had been parading around Camden Town just months before. She was clean. Amy told the news of the world that she'd escaped the so-called hell of her marriage, traded the stuffy rehabilitation clinics of London for the sun-soaked beaches of St. Lucia, and she, a married woman, even had herself a new man. Blake read the article and prickled. This wasn't mice man Pete Doherty. Amy wasn't in a drug-induced haze. She was clear-headed and making a clear-headed decision to move on with her life. Blake's eyes pulled out quotes. I'll deal with Blake when I get back. Our whole marriage was based on doing drugs. For the time being, I've forgotten I'm even married. Forgotten they were even married. Ouch. It was tabloid junk, sure, but it was tabloid junk created out of direct quotes from Amy's mouth. So maybe she was better off without him. Maybe he was a bad influence. He was man enough to admit that. It's not like she was on the straight and narrow by any means before they met, but he had introduced her to the hard stuff, to ketamine, to ecstasy, to smack. That said, here he was, stuck behind concrete and bars, and there she was, his wife, parading around in public with another man. Blake contacted his attorney from behind bars, started the divorce process, cited adultery. He wasn't gonna be made to look like a fool in front of the entire planet. The Sun, The Guardian, The Daily Mail, news of the fucking world. They had all picked the relationship apart for years like the cynical, desperate vultures they were, and now they'd be responsible for putting the final nail in the coffin. When divorce papers reached Amy, she was, frankly, shocked. And then she was livid. Blake had done the same thing to her before he went to prison, shagging her German supermodel, something widely reported in the tabloids. This, after Amy had stood by his side, held a public vigil for him for months, called out his name during performances, changed lyrics to her songs to make them more obviously about him. She just had to give it time. He would come around. He had to. Amy told the son that she still loved Blake and that she wouldn't let him divorce her, that her behavior in St. Lucia was just her having a good time. With each tabloid article in each interview, it became clearer that this wouldn't blow over. Now that there was a very real chance of Blake leaving, Amy was freaking the fuck out. She unraveled, and shortly after the St. Lucia Jazz Festival debacle, the press once again went on the hunt. There were reports that Amy had been banned from St. Lucia bars and hotels, that she had outstayed her welcome, that she had become what the locals deemed a nuisance when she's drunk. A month later, Amy was on her way back to England to attend a court date for her assault on a burlesque dancer at the Prince's Trust charity ball back in 2008. When she stepped off the plane, she burst into tears. It had been eight long months since she'd been home. She declined to speak to the media. And though she appeared healthy, the press knew things weren't as rosy as they seemed. In fact, if experience with Amy Winehouse taught them anything, it was that you didn't have to go too far below the beautiful surface to discover an ugly truth. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, 
And then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
December 2009, Buckinghamshire, England. Amy Winehouse was already a few vodka and sodas deep as she stood backstage at the Milton Keynes Theater. She watched as actors and crew members milled around and prepared to do something magical, play make-believe in a quote-unquote all-star production of Cinderella. Translation, it starred octogenarian Mickey Rooney. In reality, it was a bunch of washed-out B-listers performing a children's fairy tale. Amy knew it would be a bust. Fairy tales were bullshit. There weren't any happy endings in reality. Amy was invited to the event by her friend, Anthony Cavanaugh, a blonde-haired pop star turned reality star who was a last-minute replacement for Prince Charming. At least he had the look. Anthony was busy and Amy was bored, buzzing, and fuck, her wrist was bleeding again. She'd accidentally cut it earlier in the night before the event, and now the wound had reopened. And Thea Turner, the television presenter turned fairy godmother, excitedly approached Amy. She treated Amy like she was some novelty, patronizing her, grabbing her hand and shaking it vigorously, smiling wide, fake-ass TV personality. And Amy gave it right back. Oh, I love you, Anthea. Amy pulled her in close, wiping her bloodied hand on the side of Anthea's dress. Hilarious. Fuck your fairy tale. Anthea looked at her costume with dismay. She scurried off towards wardrobe and away from the malevolent force that was Amy Winehouse. Amy freshened up her glass. No one should be expected to make it through this show without vodka. Amy knocked back glass number five and sauntered over to her seat at the front of the stage. The curtain went up and she began to heckle the actors, at one point calling the evil stepsisters bitches audibly enough for the entire general admission area to hear. Staff informed the manager, who was now paying special attention to the patron with the beehive. One character on stage began to sneak up on another. Amy couldn't resist. He's fucking behind you! Shushes and looks of severe irritation from the audience members surrounded her. Oh, boo fucking who? What were they complaining about? She was making the show at least palatable. Someone needed to provide a little entertainment, because it sure as hell wasn't coming from the knobs on stage. When Kavanaugh appeared for his next scene as Prince Charming, Amy couldn't resist. She unleashed her masterpiece of the evening. Fuck cinders, Prince Charming, marry me. A nearby child burst into tears. That did it. The theater manager had let the slosh celebrity slide long enough. He shuffled towards Amy's seat with a pair of security guards. Could they perhaps move Ms. Winehouse to a private luxury box? Private being the operative word. She was fine just where she was, thank you. And the manager knew that she was not fine. He needed to get her out and needed to get her out now. She'd already ruined enough of his guest's experiences. And the manager stood his ground with the security guard standing next to him. Amy eyed the guards. She didn't have the energy for this. Fine. Upstairs in the luxury box, Amy was restless. Her buzz was fading. On her way to the bathroom, she passed the theater manager in the hall, mumbling curses at him under her breath. Wino at it again. On the way back to her seat, the theater manager was standing behind the bar. Amy moved confidently towards him and asked for another drink. The bartender looked her over. No chance. The manager offered her a glass of water. Maybe something that wasn't a hundred proof, Miss Winehouse. What kind of fuckery was this? Amy refused the water. In her mind, the manager had made a scene. He was the one who forced her to move seats, and now he was further making a scene, refusing her service like she was some sort of child, and she was a grown woman. 
Amy raised her voice loud enough for everyone around her to hear. Who the fuck do you think you are? Okay, now he was done. The theater manager requested that Amy leave the building. Two nearby security guards were watching intently. She eyed them. The story was being written as it happened. Amy could see the headline now. Amy Winehouse charged with assault after her foul mouth tirade. Fuck it. Amy grabbed a fistful of the manager's hair and twisted with every ounce of force she had. Then she lined up a kick and released a brutal boot right to the manager's groin. Jackpot. He collapsed to the floor, reeling as the guards and several other staff members jumped into the fray. Amy was escorted out of the theater in front of thunderstruck guests who were able to catch a glimpse. In the lobby, a police detachment was waiting with open arms to deal with her. Amy was eventually booked on assault and had her court date set three weeks out. Merry fucking Christmas. In the courthouse was an absolute scene. Paparazzi out in full force. This wasn't Amy's home, this was public property. The photographers feared no court-ordered injunction here. They took all the shots they wanted. And man, they were glad to have Amy Winehouse back in town. But they didn't quite get the train wreck they were expecting. Amy walked up to the courthouse in a miniskirt, low-cut button blouse, her trademark ballerina shoes, her hair and makeup flawless. Inside the courthouse, staring down six months on the inside, the district court judge dropped his gavel and instead sentenced Amy to a fine. 85 pounds in costs, 100 pounds to the manager and his bollocks. And the judge asked Amy to promise to the court that she'd do her best to stay on the straight and narrow for two years. And then, he said something Amy wasn't expecting. It was clear to him that she was trying her best. Her medical reports proved that. And so did her appearance in court. And he gave her credit for that. Amy exited the courthouse brimming, flashed a grin at the paparazzi. Nothing to see here, you vultures. She took that positive energy and ran with it. She recorded music with legend Quincy Jones. She had her first successful show in years, a surprise appearance at a little club gig supporting Mark Ronson. No getting booed off stage. Engaged, receptive crowds reveling in Amy at the height of her powers. Things did feel different. And that's what an eight-month self-prescribed beachside reset, an injunction against the press and a divorce will do for you. At long last, it seemed that the long-awaited new Amy Winehouse had arrived. She was no princess, she knew that, never said she was. Fuck cinders indeed. Maybe she could relate to some of that story, the one she half-watched at the Milton Keys Theater. Cinderella had her own struggles to overcome, not least of which were her sisters. They held her back and said she would never amount to anything. But she proved them wrong, and no doubt achieved some sort of personal vindication at the end. Sure, Amy could relate to that. But what the story of Cinderella got wrong is that it stopped at the most crucial moment. The moment that Cinders becomes someone that she never thought she would be. Never really wanted to be, honestly. And then what happened? She lived happily ever after? Bullshit. How does she deal with being a fucking princess? How does she deal with being someone that others in the kingdom fawned over, lusted after, and shit-talked in equal measure? Cinderella wasn't real, and neither were fairy tales. Amy Winehouse, on the other hand, was living in the real world, so she basked in the high, not in the high of an illicit drug for once, but the high of being back on top of her game. But she knew the high came with a caveat, that there were no happy endings in the real world.
Blake Fielder Civil was bleary-eyed. He searched through his pocket for the key card. Amy Winehouse leaned against him. Both bodies required the other to remain upright. Blake unlocked the door to their East London hotel room and the duo staggered inside. They were exhausted, it was late. Another long night at the club. Amy collapsed on the bed. Blake decamped to the bathroom. He prepared his nightly ritual, the one that came in clutch after a night of ear-rattling bass and more drinks than he could count. He stood over the sink and produced a small piece of tinfoil, a lighter, and 10 pounds worth of white powder from his pocket. He opened his wallet, pulled a crisp bill, rolled it tight, and then lit the foil. He inhaled the smoke through the bill. He felt it fill his lungs. The taste was different than the steady diet of cigarettes he'd inhaled all evening. The feeling was euphoric. It reached out to every receptor, like an eraser on a chalkboard. Every negative thought or feeling was instantly wiped out. He would call it a dream, but dreams didn't feel this good. Blake heard a noise from behind him. He turned around to see Amy in the doorway. She saw what he was doing. He could tell she was intrigued. And this was new territory for her. She asked if she could take a hit. Blake shook his head. He couldn't say for sure if he didn't want her doing heroin because he didn't want her to get hooked on it or because he didn't want to share his stash. Amy kept asking, wouldn't take no for an answer. Blake was weak. He eventually handed her the bill and lit the foil. She did as he had done, as she felt that rush, the rush, for the first time. And there was nothing else in the world that even came close to the sensation. It was her key to escape, to escape the tabloids, the fame, the pressure. She wasn't sure where heroin took her, but it wasn't here and it wasn't now, and that was just all right. Amy couldn't get enough. She and Blake went deep into dope, chased that rush for a month, and then another and another. And by month four, Blake was in jail. Amy was inconsolable. And without Blake, she was in pain. Not just emotional, but physical pain. And there was only one thing she knew that would help her make that pain go away. February, 2013. Blake Fielder Civil felt the studio lights bear down on him as he told the story about that night in a London hotel room some six years earlier. It wasn't just the lights bothering him. The camera lenses stared at him like they were judging him. And the television host, Jeremy Kyle, went right for the jugular. You gave her heroin for the first time, the host said. More statement than question. They all already knew the answer. They all saw Blake as a pariah. They all blamed him for the tragedy that had befallen his ex-wife some two years earlier. They just wanted to hear him say it. Blake nodded. He admitted that he had introduced Amy to class A drugs just two months after they married. He felt responsible for her addiction. Years later, when he felt emasculated and humiliated after reading about Amy's affair from behind prison bars, and maybe that was karma. What goes around comes around. Maybe he did deserve that. Blake wasn't trying to make a buck. He just wanted to set the record straight. He wanted the world to understand that Amy wasn't some pitiful junkie. She just made some bad choices, that was all. And goddammit, some of those bad choices were on him, sure. He touched the spot behind his ear where he had a tattoo that read A-M-Y. He liked to think she did it for him, so that he wouldn't be alone, that she did it out of love. And there it was, that word again, love. Love changed the course of your life, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, and sometimes it was just a losing game. Now, 
Blake Fielder Civil sat on a stage in front of a studio audience and spewed intimate knowledge to the same people who drove Amy mad. The ones who took away her ability to live a normal life. Blake pulled back the curtain and what the public saw were some truly horrific close calls with crack, cocaine, and heroin. But it was a smokescreen because as truthful as Blake thought he was being in his tell-all interview, truth was, he wasn't telling the whole truth. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. The 27 Club is hosted and produced by me, Jake Brennan, for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. This episode was mixed by Matt Bowden. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. This episode was written by Ted Omo. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Talk to me on social at Disgraceland Pod and hang out with me live on my Twitch channel, Disgraceland Talks. For more news on your favorite podcast, follow at Double Elvis on Instagram. Rockarola. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, our lost sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.